series on communion and Hebrew roots. The communion table is so powerful and so important, but honestly, if you haven't heard the other three sermons before this, um, this kind of builds on it, so I would really encourage you to go back and listen to those, especially last week's sermon, because this, this is going to build on that tremendously. All right, but I believe that even if you haven't heard those, you'll still get a lot out of this sermon today. So I'm going to be dealing with the Jewish wedding and the betrothal cup because we've dealt with the communion table. And in this communion table, I've talked about the deep consecration. I've talked about how it affects, there's a sanctifying effect it can have not only on us, but our family. And we, we dealt with all that scripturally. We talked about the benefits of communion, the, um, how many people are healed taking communion and, and people are set free and all that. So I can't get back into all that. But this is more along the lines of intimacy with the Lord. And this subject matter is what has probably, one of the things that has changed my life completely is the fact of really being in a relationship and intimacy with God, really knowing Him, knowing His voice, being in His presence. How many knows that's really the most important thing in our Christian walk? It really is. I mean, we need to know the Word. We need to get off the milk onto the meat and all of that, but... But really, we need to know Him. And that's, that's where I'm coming from with this, okay? Because we can know a lot about Him and not know Him. And that's a very dangerous thing. Okay, so, let's read this, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. It says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, and this is talking about the children of Israel, were under the cloud and they passed through the sea, talking about the Red Sea. Verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. So the cloud is the baptism symbolically of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And the sea has to do with water baptism. And all ate the same spiritual food. So the eating of manna is symbolic of us with the communion table today. Okay, And... Verse 4, they drank from the spiritual, the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. Now, the water that's coming from that rock has to do with the Holy Spirit. And the rock, it says here, is Christ. So all of this is symbolic for us today. What, what Israel had in the natural, it was a shadow of things to come. We have the reality and the fullness now in Christ, okay? But verse 5, and this is the warning, says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, and they were laid low, or they died in the wilderness. I don't know about you, but I do not want to die in the spiritual wilderness. I want to be able to go from glory to glory and enter into the fullness of the promised land and what God has for me in life. Both individually as as a person, but also in a destiny, what God has called me to do. And I'm sure all of you feel the same way. You don't want to, spiritually speaking, just kind of come to a place of dying in the wilderness. You want to press on into the things of God, okay? So I want you to see in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul was using this as an illustration of what we can learn from now today in Christianity. I want you to see that. So with that said, let's look at Exodus chapter 14. Now this is when Israel was fleeing from Pharaoh and his armies, and they, his army, and they were at the Red Sea. I'm going to read this story, and I'm going to show you some things maybe you haven't seen before, and how this is going to relate to the communion table. 
Well, first off, understand that Israel had just had Passover, so they had just had what we today would know as communion. Okay, they had just had that. They ate of the lamb, the blood was applied to the doorpost, and they were obviously the um, unleavened bread, all of that. So, they had taken Passover, they had left Egypt, and they were standing before the Red Sea. They look back and they see the enemy is attacking, they're coming. And the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Now, if you've never seen a Red Sea part, this would be a situation that would seem, you know. Yeah, but God said, why are you crying out to me? You know, tell the sons of Israel, march forward. Verse 10 or verse 16, sorry, it says, as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel will go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, for I am honored through Pharaoh and through his chariots and horsemen. Now, verse 19. The angel of God, who was going before Israel, he was in front of them, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud, I want you guys to get this, the pillar of cloud that was in front of them moved to the back. And it came in between Egypt and Israel. And there was a cloud along with darkness that was toward Egypt, yet it gave light at night to Israel. Thus one did not come near the other throughout the night. So I want you to picture this. You're standing there. There's a sea... And Moses is saying, we've got to go forward. And this angel that was in front of them, they see, I'm sure many of them saw this, this angel goes behind them now and is in between them and the Egyptians that are coming. And the cloud that was before them, the cloud of God's glory, begins to move through the camp of Israel, just like when you drive through a fog. So this cloud of God's glory was coming through Israel. So this was like a a baptism in the Holy Spirit of sorts that we have the fullness of today. But this cloud came through Israel, and they see this pass through them and go behind them. And now both the angel and the cloud is in between them and the Egyptians. And so one of the things you can see here is that I'm trying to give some people some prayer points that God can put his angels and his glory in between you and your enemies, and it will make a difference. So Israel's standing there. Moses is lifting up his rod. The Red Sea begins to part, and the Egyptians get close to Israel, but they can't touch them. They, they're coming up toward them, but that angel and that cloud was there, and they couldn't get through it to get to Israel. And this didn't last for five minutes. This lasted through the night. So let me just read the rest of the story. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord swept the sea back with a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. See, all night long, this was going on. So the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on the right and the left. Then the Egyptians took pursuit. So all night long, we know that that wind had to dry that out because some of you guys that's, that's been in the country, you've ever been hunting or you grew up and you ever did anything outdoors, got a real heavy rain, or you went by a riverbed or something, you know that you can step in that type of mud and it's going to go up to your ankles and maybe higher and you're not going to go anywhere. 
So if the, if the Red Sea had parted and all of them just ran in real quick, they all would have got stuck in the mud. And so God had to let that happen all night long where that cloud and that angel protected them. And that wind was blowing through there, drying it out for them, okay? Now here's the interesting thing. Verse 23, the Egyptians took up pursuit and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went after them in the midst of the sea. So Israel had already gotten through this Red Sea on dry land. And now the Egyptians say, okay, now we're going to chase after him. God moved that angel and that cloud out of the way. And they start chasing after him through the sea. In verse 24, at the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and the cloud. And he brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. So, we, you know, we talk about an open heaven. It's really important that this open heaven that is over you, that God can look down through that open heaven and can see things that's going on. Okay, so y'all please catch this. That there's an open heaven over us, and that's the very thing that the Bible talks about. I've heard a preacher say this, and I agree with this. That that open heaven is what God is going to catch away his bride through. An open heaven is a personal thing. It's something that's over an individual's life and over a church. Okay, it's, it's something that God one day is going to snatch his bride through that, and I'll explain that as we go through this sermon. But the Lord looked down, and when he looked down at the situation, he looked down through that cloud. So picture, if you will, like if you've ever seen a tornado, and you see how the tornado is going, and you can look down through a funnel, and in the middle of that tornado is like the eye of the storm. So God is looking down through that pillar of cloud like you would look down through a telescope and he sees the situation. Is everybody catching this? Whenever you have an open heaven over your life, there's something about um, that situation that, that is going to bring more heaven's activity into your life. We need the heavens open over our lives and our ministry. But God looked down through that open heaven. Now granted, they had already had Passover so they had already been under the blood. They had already been consecrated by God. And so now this glory cloud is there. And there's this open heaven. God's looking down through it. And he's looking down through it like a telescope. He sees them. And what does he do? He causes the chariots and the wheels to swerve. He made them drive with difficulty. There was great confusion among the Egyptians. Let us flee from Israel. They said, for the Lord is fighting against the Egyptians. Then, so Israel's already on the other side now. God's looked down through that portal, through that open heaven. He threw the Egyptians into confusion. And now Moses is standing on the shore and he raises up his rod. And now the sea comes back together. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The sea returned as normal. And the Egyptians were fleeing, but it closed down on them and destroyed it, killed them. And the sons of Israel, verse 29 um, walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. So it was a great deliverance that happened, a great deliverance that happened after they had Passover. And how God moved with such power on their behalf. So there's something about the Passover table, the communion table, that helps to consecrate God's people and help open the heavens over God's people. You see what I'm saying? It consecrates God's people, open the heavens, 
and a great deliverance took place. And that's what I want on my life, that God would consecrate us, that God would open, his, open the heavens over us, and there, there would be a deliverance from anything that the enemy would try to throw. And I believe that's the power about water baptism. You know, beyond our salvation experience, the things like the baptism in the Holy Spirit is so important. It's like they were baptized in the cloud. That was a picture and type of now as being baptized in the Holy Spirit. But we need that. And the quality of our Christian life will never be what it could be if we, if we don't have that fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think about my wife's testimony coming out, all that she had to come out of. My God, if she had been in some dead church where they didn't believe in the power of God, she may not have really be here right now, to be honest with you. But she happened upon a full gospel church that believed in the power of God, and they were able to really help her. And she needed help. But we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And also the baptism in water. The children of Israel went through that Red Sea. That Red Sea, there was a deep consecration that happened with Israel because they had been consecrated by the blood at Passover. Now they're consecrated through that baptism. But I want you to realize that when they went through that same water that baptized them in the Moses, shut behind them and destroyed their enemies that were chasing them. And think about as Christians, you know, you get saved out of a lot of stuff. And you've got a lot of things that may be trying to chase you from your past into your future. And I believe the power of water baptism is to help to separate you from your past and break the power that the devil's had over people's lives and set them free. And I believe many people have experienced that um, in River of Life. All right. So now let's talk about the Jewish wedding. So here's how it was back in ancient times in Israel. And you're going to see a lot of parallels here with Jesus and his bride, okay? But the Jewish young men, let's say that a Jewish young man wanted to find a wife. And so he would maybe go out by the well and look for a wife because it was the young lady's chores to go draw water from the well. And so he could go out there and look around and see if he spotted some young lady that caught his attention. Um, The young man would approach the father. If he found a young lady that really caught his attention and he wanted to marry her, he would go to her father, approach the father of the girl, and offer a dowry. So offer some kind of financial compensation. And when Jesus was going to get a bride, he gave his own life, okay, as a dowry. His life on the cross was full payment for a bride, okay? The young man would give what he could, and the father would set the price. So the heavenly father set the price that it would have to be the cross, and Jesus paid that in full. As the young man would then come, the young man would then come to the house of his future wife's father. He would go to her house to the father, and he would give that dowry to the father. And once they had come to an agreement, that father said, here's the price. He paid the price. Their part was done. Here's what they did. They would pour a cup of wine and set it on the table. If she agreed in her heart to the contract, she would take and drink the wine. Because they wanted her to be in agreement with this. And this is a picture and type of the communion table today as we take the Lord's Supper. Is everybody seeing the symbolism? So the Heavenly Father set the price. Jesus paid the price. He wants a bride. And now we, as a free will thing, we're accepting what Jesus did. 
And whenever we take communion, we're, we're showing the Lord, yes, we want to be your bride. We want to be your people. We want to be set apart for you. So the young woman would then, once she drank the wine and she agreed to the contract, she agreed that she would be his wife, the young woman would then wear a veil to show that she was engaged and she kept herself pure until he was to return. So this veil was like an engagement ring. And this veil was saying to everybody, when she left that house and she put that veil on, everybody knew this woman was spoken for, leave her alone. And that's how she wanted it to be. She wanted to keep herself pure where there wouldn't be anybody messing with her. She was set apart for her future bridegroom. So the young man now, she agreed. The young man paid the price. The father accepted that. Now she agreed to be his bride. So now he's excited. So he runs out of the house to prepare a dwelling place for them. How many knows Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us? So he would begin at his father's house to build a bridal chamber. And this could take up to two years to do this. So she had to wear that veil and be waiting and looking for up to two years for his return. And just like now, it's been about 2,000 years from the time Christ left until this day. And I believe we're getting very close to the coming of the Lord. So the father would also help guide the hands of his son as he built this bridal chamber. After the bridal area was built and complete, the father would declare, it is time to go get your bride. And Jesus even said, only the father knows the time. The day and the hour, not even the Son of Man knows. So when it was time and the house was built, friends would run. Now listen to this. When the time was finished, the house was built, the father said, it's time, go get your bride. The friends of the bridegroom would run in front of him and they would be shouting, behold, the bridegroom comes. And when Jesus comes to catch away his bride, the angels with a shout and with a loud shofar blast are going to go in front of the Lord, remember? Now, this young lady that's agreed to this, she has a lamp by her bed, and every night she would put oil in that lamp before going to sleep and make sure that the wick was trimmed and the lamp was full of oil. And if she was wise, she would even have some extra oil there um, because as the lamp maybe would go out, At 2 or 3 in the morning, he may come after that. So she had some extra oil. She wanted to be ready. This is all going to make sense as we go, okay? Can you please turn that up? It's getting cold for me. And so she would be there at the bed every night. And during the day, she wore that veil. But she knew as she went to bed at night, she knew, I have got to put this lamp, trim the wick, fill it with oil, and I've got to be ready in case my bridegroom comes tonight. I've got to be looking for his coming. I've got to be anticipating his coming. I've got to be ready when he comes. I've been veiled. I've been keeping myself pure for him. I'm I'm not cheating around on him. And here I am being faithful. And I'm looking for his coming. I'm anticipating that. He said he was going to go build a place for us. She was always kept on the second floor. And so the groom would come and he would put a ladder on the side of the house. And the groom would climb up that ladder and steal her away out of that window. So she was being like caught away like a thief in the night. 
In Revelation chapter 4, you see that there was an opening, an open heaven, and there was a voice that said, come up here. And it's a reference to the bride who has made herself ready, being caught away. Like a thief in the night, the Lord catching his bride away. And the Bible says to encourage and comfort one another with these words. We look for that day. And so the wedding would take place. Now, this is the important part. The wedding would take place under a chopa, which was like a, in Jewish culture, was some kind of a covering, okay, over the bride and groom. And the feast would last for seven days. And when the bride is caught away, the bride and the bridegroom are going to be together at the marriage supper of the Lamb for seven years. And it's going to be just like this seven-day celebration that would take place in the natural. So here's something interesting. I'll come back to this later. But in ancient times, the consummation of the marriage was a very important part of the marriage ceremony. See, it was viewed that if two people were engaged and then they stood underneath that chopa and they were declared married, that they still were not completely married until they went and consummated the marriage. And once they had sexual relations and the, um, they consummated that marriage, then, then they were considered fully married. Okay, So this is the way that it would happen. They would have the celebration there. They, they would get married under that covering. And the people were there ready, ready to party for seven days. Okay, we're all ready. We've got all the stuff we need. And they would be whisked away to a place where they could be alone in private. And this is, this is true. This was prepared for them, okay? And there would be a witness that's outside somewhere, but they would consummate their marriage there. And it's going to sound weird to you and I, but this is just the way it was. And so when that happened, um, the bridegroom would come out and he would have a sheet and there would be a little bit of blood there from, you know, she was a virgin, they had sex. And he would show the witness, and the witness say, okay, number one, she kept herself pure for him, but number two, now the marriage is consummated, it's finished. And so he would run back and tell the people, it's done. It's complete now. And so they would begin the celebration. Then the bride and the bridegroom, whenever they would get things together, they would come out and join the celebration. It lasted for seven days. And if... Once they had consummated their marriage and there's that blood there on the sheet and it was a sign of a blood covenant between two people. Once that has happened, that woman would take that sheet and fold it up and she'd put it amongst her things because later on in life, if they were ever going through a real difficult time and maybe he was frustrated and he was talking about divorce or something, she would go back and find that sheep buried amongst her things and pull it out and show him and say, look, we have a blood covenant, you and I. And this will all make sense as I'm going here with the communion table. All right, so first off, one of the revelations about taking communion as Christians and it's across the board no matter what denominations there are it seems like that's one of the few things that all Christians pretty much universally can do together and not fuss and fight with each other but as we come together and take communion I believe that what you're saying when you have that cup and that piece of bread 
is you're saying just like that young lady, they would fill the cup with wine and they would put it on the table and the bridegroom had already paid her father the dowry. It was paid in full. He accepted it. The bridegroom was ready and it was up to her. Are you going to agree to this thing? I believe that as we take communion, one of the revelations about communion is, is Lord, I want to be part of your bride. I want to set myself apart as holy. I want to be looking for your coming. And as I take this, I'm agreeing. While you're gone, preparing a place for me, that I'm going to keep myself for you, and I'm set apart as yours. And this is like a betrothal cup. I really believe it is. It's a, it's a symbolism of some kind of an engagement. But see, when the two would get married and they would go consummate the marriage, it was like it was finished there. And hopefully this will make sense, but right now we're taking the betrothal cup, but there's going to come a day when the Lord's going to come as a thief in the night. He's going to steal away his bride, and we're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I believe at that place, whenever that, that fourth cup of the Passover is held up, and I'll explain that here in a moment, and we partake of that, that's going to be like the consummation. It's like everything is finished. The, it's like the the completion of all of this. Just like the priest, whenever they were ordained to office, in the Old Testament times, they had to go through a water immersion, they had to have bloodshed, they had to be anointed, they had to be clothed, but also they had to stay at the tabernacle in that holy place for seven days as they were being consecrated because the presence of God, the Spirit of God, was consecrating them for their office. But they had to be there for those seven days. I believe that while we're there with the Lord at that marriage supper of the Lamb, that somehow there was something going on in all of us to really deeply consecrate us. And it's like the two becoming one, and then we're going to come back with him on the earth to rule and reign with him. So here's the thing. Right now... I believe the coming of the Lord is near. And just like Israel was in Egypt for around 400 years, it was like they were crying out from their slavery and all that, but it was like there was a fullness of time when it was, I mean, it was time now for God to pull his people out. And only the Father knows the time, okay? But I believe when you look at the signs, I don't want to rabbit trail on this because we've already preached so much on end time prophecy, you know. But I believe the signs point to the nearness of the Lord's coming. So what I'm saying is, is symbolically speaking, we're kind of on our way out. We're, we're getting ourselves ready to go. And just like when it was time for Israel to leave Egypt, God brought them to that Passover table to help get them ready. And I really believe that God is calling us to that right now. And there's a lot of other people that feel it. There's a draw to the communion table and in other things as well to really consecrate ourselves and get ready because the coming of the Lord is near. All right, so here's some things about the preparation of the rapture being caught, caught out. A bride that's made herself ready. Let me show you a couple things. 
In Psalms 104, verse 2, the Bible says the Lord wraps himself in light as a garment and he stretches out the heavens like a tent. So let me share something real fast. This is just a very quick rabbit trail here. But whenever God said, let there be light, he created the sun, moon, and stars after that. So a lot of people don't understand that because the first light he created was his glory, the Shekinah glory, the shining. And the Bible says he wraps himself with light like a garment. So this was a spiritual light. It was a spiritual shining, okay? That's the first thing God created. So when you, when you read that, let there be light, that's what it's referring to. Now, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, please catch this. This is important, and it has to do with where I'm going. Adam and Eve were in the garden. The Bible says they were naked, and they knew no shame, all right? But in their, their nakedness, it, the first word, you can look this up in the Hebrew, and this is where sometimes it's important to do word searches because the Hebrew words will bring some things out that really provide some depth, okay? But they were naked and knew no shame, and then after they ate the fruit... They were still naked, but all of a sudden they were ashamed of being naked. It's like, well, what happened? Well, one of the things that happened was the Bible said God created Adam and Eve in his image. And the Bible says he wraps himself with light as a garment. And whenever Adam and Eve were in the garden, when they were naked and they knew no shame, the word there for naked is arom, A-R-O-M in Hebrew. And it means partially nude. But whenever they ate of the fruit and they were ashamed, and it said they were naked after that. The word in Hebrew is erom, E-R-O-M, and it means completely nude. I really believe the Hebrew bears out that they were wrapped in some kind of glory. They were wrapped in some kind of a presence of God, like a garment, a shining. And the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory. And whenever they sinned, the glory lifted off of them. And they were ashamed, okay? So the thing is, when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus died nude so that we could be clothed. Okay, it was a shameful thing, but Jesus had to take that shame because in the garden, they, they had um, become completely nude through their sin. You see what I'm saying? And they tried to clothe themselves in fig leaves, but God had to kill an animal and give them animal skins. But Jesus died nude so that we could be clothed. And I believe the clothing is a spiritual garment of the presence of God begin to wrap our lives up again. And I'm going somewhere with this. The Bible says in Psalms 91 verse 1, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High, those that are secret place dwellers will rest or will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. He will cover you with his feathers under his wings. You'll find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. So the Lord, those that are secret place dwellers, the Bible promises us that we will abide under his shadow. There's some kind of a covering of his wings. It's really a picture and type of Jesus whenever he was walking the earth, having that prayer shawl, that tallit, and it's like the wings of that and you being covered under that. So God is drawing a bride back to a communion table where he can consecrate his people again. Just like we read about in Exodus whenever the children of Israel had gone on to the Passover, um, they had been consecrated. They were consecrated through the water baptism. It's like Israel kind of did their part, if you will. If we do our part to go at the communion table and things like, for example, water immersion and things like the anointing with oil, it's like we do our part to consecrate our lives and to repent of things we need to, God will do his part. And God's part was he sent an angel through the camp 
and he sent his glory cloud through the camp. And let me tell you, the Bible says that the, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will sanctify us. And here we are doing our part, but what we can't do, God will do supernaturally. And not only that, the Bible says that the angels of the Lord in Hebrews are ministering spirits sent to minister unto, unto us as heirs of salvation. So the Lord, once we do our part to cleanse our lives, God will do his part by his, the power of his Holy Spirit and the ministry of angels to really consecrate his people. But God's calling a bride to purify herself and cleanse her ways, number one. And then number two, he's calling a bride to be intimate with him. To quit doing all these other things all the time and rather to come into being a secret place dweller under the shadow of his wings. Underneath his presence. So in Ruth 3.1, soaking under the Lord's Talit is what I want to use as a reference here, but I'm going to go through this real fast just to make this point. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said, and Naomi represents Israel, and as we learn from um, Israel, the shadows and types of the things that happened in the Old Testament, what we have available to us today, this is kind of like Naomi teaching the Gentile church, okay, how to please God. But anyway, my daughter shall not seek security for you, that it may be well for you. Now, is not Boaz a kinsman redeemer? Boaz was a picture and type of Christ um, with whose maids you were with. And so listen, she was telling him he's going to winnow barley at his threshing floor tonight. So wash yourself. Or does everybody follow this? This is amazing. Winnowing barley was they would go out and gather in the barley, and there was a big pitchfork, and they would take that barley, and they had a, an area called a threshing floor, and he would toss it in the air. And the wind would come through and blow out the chaff, and so the barley would fall back on the ground. They would do that to thresh and, and clear out the chaff away from the barley. And so he was, this was barley harvest time. This is Passover time because that's when the barley harvest is. And there he was, Boaz was working. And Naomi says, first thing you need to do, Ruth, is to wash yourself, cleanse yourself. Does everybody catch this? As we cleanse ourselves. She said, anoint yourself. Put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you will notice the place where he lies. And you'll go, uncover his feet and lie down. And he'll tell you what to do. And so Boaz and people like him that were wealthy men and they were threshing there. They had this big pile of barley. They're going to sleep on their barley because they don't want people coming in the middle of the night and steal their barley. Okay? And so she knew he's going to be sleeping there to protect his goods. And so that's where he slept that night. And Ruth comes in and lays at his feet, uncovers his feet, lays down. And so she's laying there kind of soaking in the presence of the Lord, so to speak. And verse 5, Naomi said, um, he'll tell you what to do. And she said to her, all that you say I'll do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and he drunk and he was merry in his heart, he went and laid down on the heap of grain. And she came secretly. And she uncovered his feet and laid down. It was like a submissive thing, but she wanted to show um, her love for him. Anyway, it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and he bent forward and he saw the woman laying at his feet. Okay, he's like, who are you? And uh, she answered, I'm Ruth, your maid. So she, and listen to what she said. 
spread the covering of your garment over your maiden. Okay, spread your covering over me. For you are a close relative or a kinsman redeemer. And then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You've shown this last act of kindness to be better than the first by not going to younger men, rather uh, poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do whatever you ask. But in that time in Jewish culture, when people would get married, it was customary and still is to this day that there'll be a prayer shawl put over the husband and wife. And she was saying, put your, put your prayer shawl over me. Draw me into a relationship, an intimate relationship with you. And she had to make that first step to go. And what I'm saying is this, that there's a, a lot of symbolism here, but the Lord is looking for a bride that will cleanse herself and then will go, will go lay at his feet and be intimate with him. All right. And that covering, that tallit, that prayer shawl, is symbolic of the Lord's manifest presence. See, there's two Hebrew words. One is Chabad, C-H-A-B-A-D, Chabad. The Chabad will come over. The Chabad glory is like this. It's a weighty presence of God. I believe that Adam and Eve felt that weight. They lived with some kind of a, they felt something on them that left. And secondly, the second word, the Hebrew word for glory is the Shekinah. And we, we would say Shekinah, but it's a shining. And so the glory of the Lord, and many of you know this because God's touched you, and you know what I'm talking about. When God's touched you, maybe you fell, in the, fell out and you, you felt the glory come on, you feel like a weight of God's glory. That is his prayer shawl, if you will. That's his, um, the shadow of his wings, that you're under his glory. And that's what Ruth understood. Naomi taught her to go lay at his feet, to sit at his feet there, and that you know, she was asking for that covering to come over her. And then Esther, it's like the wise virgins with extra oil. Esther had to meet with the king, remember? Now when the turn of each young lady came to go in to be with the king at the end of her 12 months under the regulations for women, for in those days their beautification was completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and cosmetics for women. Now there's oil... Back in the Old Testament time, the, you can look this up, but the oil that's used in the tabernacle, this is kind of the same stuff, actually. They studied it out, but I don't know if you can really see this oil, but I'll put a little bit here on my hand, but it's not just plain oil, but you can see that there's spices in it, okay? And this was the same type of oil that they used in the Old Testament time in the tabernacle. But it had... Olive oil, but it had myrrh, it had cassia, cinnamon, and calamus. And it was ground up like all of you have seen cinnamon. So it's the same type of thing. It was ground up these spices. It was put in with the oil. And this is symbolic here of the fact that Esther had to go through some purification with the oil. She was being saturated and, and soaked with that oil, having that oil rubbed into her. And it was a great preparation for her time with the king. And that's going to make a lot of sense at the end when I talk about the wise virgins with extra oil. So you have to understand all this for Jesus' parables to make sense. All right, the fourth cup of the Passover, well, at least in regards to the wise virgins. The four cups of Passover. So every year, Passover celebrated. The communion table was taken out of Passover. It's something that we can do all year long. 
But these four cups at Passover is this. The first cup is a cup of sanctification. And this has to do with our salvation experience and also that we want to be deeply consecrated unto God. We want to be set apart holy. The second cup is deliverance. And this is where we're delivered. We recognize our deliverance from Satan's kingdom. How many of you guys know at one time all of us belong to Satan's kingdom? But we've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And not only that, but we want to be set free from any bondage or anything else the devil's had in our lives. We want to be set free from it. The third cup is the cup that Jesus used as communion. After the meal, he held up the third cup of Passover, which is called the, um, the cup of redemption. And there was bread called the afikoman bread that was hidden and brought back. He had that bread. And so Jesus took that bread, he broke it, he blessed it, he passed it around, he took the cup, the third cup of redemption, and blessed it, and passed that around. And redemption speaks of us being purchased by God, but it also has a lot to do with healing. How many of you guys know there's a lot of healing at the cross? There's physical healing by his stripes were healed, but there's, there's healing in the fact that we're reconciled unto God. So there's spiritual healing. There's also um, psychological, emotional healing. There's a lot of healing. And I believe that the cup of redemption speaks a lot of healing. Now, this is interesting because on the night Jesus was betrayed, he was holding that Passover Seder meal with his disciples. And he said after this third cup, he said, I tell you the truth, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. And so he did not drink the fourth cup of praise, which he would have done every other year of his life, but he left that one there because that's the cup that will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb one day when we get there. But even when Jesus appeared back, he was raised from the dead, and he appeared to those 500 people, and you read about him on the seashore. And remember, Peter comes, and he had built a fire and was cooking fish and all that. He ate the fish, but you never read again in anywhere in Scripture where Jesus drank from the fruit of the vine. Because once he drank that third cup, and he instituted communion for us, he said, I'm not going to drink this again until what? Till we do it together in my Father's kingdom one day. And so the fourth cup at Passover is the cup of praise. And I believe, symbolically speaking, this is like the final cup. This is the cup of consummation. Now go back to the Jewish wedding, how things were finished at the consummation. I believe when we are caught away with our bridegroom and we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Lord is going to hold up this fourth cup that he promised, I'm not going to drink this until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. He's going to hold up that fourth cup and he's going to finish the Passover Seder meal that he started with his disciples 2,000 years ago. We're all going to be there. We're going to be there with Peter and all of them. Okay, we're all going to be there. He's going to hold up that cup, and he's going to bless it, and he's going to pass it around, and it's not going to run out. And every single person, as we drink of that cup, it's going to be like the consummation of all things. We're going to, it's going to be sealed and complete. We're with him. So how often did the early church take communion? I believe that the early church took communion frequently. And the reason why I say that, here's several things. Probably the early church took it corporately every Sabbath because we read about in Acts 20 verse 7 that they met together and broke bread weekly. And we know that we eat more than once a week. So I believe it was a reference 
to the Lord's table. And many people probably took communion daily or at least frequently in their own lives in the early church. Now, listen to this. There was a man by the name of Justin Martyr, and he lived from 100 A.D. to 165. And he described the early church. So you've got to understand the apostle John would have died around 90 A.D. That's when he wrote the book of Revelation, and he died on the Isle of Patmos. So this was like the next generation of churches that were there after the last apostle died. So Justin Martyr lived in that age. And he said this, the early church, they, they have his writings, the early church was a simple meeting of believers on the Lord's Day. So they recognized there being like a day, like a Sabbath day, to hear the scriptures read and explained. So preaching and teaching, singing hymns together, that's praise and worship, offering of prayer, I believe intercession and probably altar ministry, praying for one another, and the Lord's Supper. So he recognized that every week they took communion together and receiving gifts, which is tithes and offerings. And everybody knows Smith Wigglesworth. Smith Wigglesworth took communion every day. And he openly talked about that. So it's something that you can take, the Bible says, as often as you will, as often as you do this. So you can take communion on your own personally um, anytime you desire to do so. And we take communion together as a church when we come together. All right, so let me start in the last couple things here. Um, the wise virgins with extra oil. In Matthew 25, verse 1, it says, The kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. Now, I want you to notice all ten were virgins. They weren't five virgins and five harlots. All ten were virgins. Who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise or prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent or the wise took oil and flask along with their lamps. Now the bridegroom was delaying, and they all got drowsy and began to fall asleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes, come out, could come out to meet him. And all of those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish one said to the wise or the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. And the wise one answered, no, we will not because there won't be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And now while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went with him to the wedding feast. The door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came. Saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he said, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on your alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. So you see here the symbolism. If you understand the Jewish weddings of that time, you understand this parable really easily. So just like the young lady, every night she would go to sleep and she would have that, that lamp. It was trimmed. It was, she had it uh, filled with oil. She lit it. It would sit there, but she knew that it would run out in the middle of the night. She would have extra oil there because what if he came at 3 or 4 in the morning? You know, what if he came at 5 in the morning? I wanted to be ready to go. I wanted to have extra oil. I wanted to be ready to go as soon as he comes. And she was keeping herself pure for him. And the Lord said to those that missed out that weren't ready when he came, Truly I tell you, I, I do not know you. The word know there in the Greek implies intimacy. And this will make more sense as we go here in just a moment. But communion, I believe, helps us 
to consecrate ourselves as a bride and helps us to get into the Holy of Holies where there's intimacy with God, which I talked about last week in that sermon. Like Ruth and Esther, we learn to soak in God's presence under His glory and to be filled with extra oil. That's one of the reasons why God is pouring out His Spirit in these last days. The Bible says He would, and He's doing it because He's trying, the Holy Spirit is trying to prepare a bride for Christ's coming. He wants us to be drawn into a place of being consecrated wholly unto God, but to be filled with extra oil. We don't have physical lamps. <laughs> it's not talking about like you got your little lamp, you know, you're ready to go. And it's talking about the lamp is your prayer life. And we don't run around all the time with these little you know, flasks of oil. I've got my little extra oil. The oil is in you and on you. It is the Holy Spirit's anointing. And God is wanting us to live filled with His Spirit so that when He comes, though it be delayed, we're going to be ready at all times. We need that extra oil. So Song of Solomon 5.2, there was this young lady. She was asleep, but her heart was awake. A voice her beloved was knocking, open to me, my sister, my darling. This was her bridegroom wanting to spend time with her. My perfect one, for my head is drenched with dew, my locks like the damp, with the damp of night. I've, and this is her response. I've already taken off my dress. Should I put it back on again? I've washed my feet. How can I dirty them again? She was saying, I'm too tired to spend time with you. And my beloved extended his hand through the opening and my feelings were aroused for him. I rose to open to my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh. There was that oil there that was available to her, but he had left. And she said, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and he was gone. And my heart went out to him and I searched for him, but I did not find him. I called to him and I did not answer. So the Lord is, the Bible says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, and I will dine with him, and he with me. That there can be, I believe the dine there is, is a reference to um, the communion table, but it's, it's fellowship. God, the reason God created mankind was for fellowship. He had plenty of angels. He had, God has everything he needs. You think God needs money? No. Um, God has everything that he could possibly need except one thing. He wanted a family. He wanted people that have free will that would choose to love him and spend time with him. And so he created Adam and Eve. He put them in the garden and they had paradise and he would come walk with them and talk with them in the cool of the day. That's what he wanted. They were like a family. But yet, in the end, the devil tricked them and, betray and they betrayed God. And we know the story. So God is looking for that fellowship. Now here's the last couple of things. The difference between the church and the bride. In Luke 10:38, now as they were traveling along, Jesus and his disciples, they entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed them into her home. And she had a sister named Mary, we all know this story, who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to him. So this is kind of reminds me of Ruth laying at the feet of Boaz. Okay, here she is. She just wants to be with Jesus. Yeah, there's a lot of things to do. We need to dust. We need to clean. You know, we got dishes to wash. There's all this stuff that we need to do. And Martha was doing all that, and she was angry because Mary was just sitting there. And Mary's just like, I just want to sit at Jesus' feet. I just want to listen to him. I want to talk to him. I want to spend time with him. And verse 40 says, Martha was distracted with all the preparations. She came to the Lord and said, Don't you care that my sister's left me to do all the work? 
And he, she was telling Jesus, tell her to get up and help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, you've worried and bothered yourself about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary's chosen a good, her good part, so to speak, that she spent time with me. And it's not going to be taken away from her. In other words, Jesus is saying, just leave her alone. She wants to spend time with me. See, the church is busy about many things, but the bride wants to be with him. All right, a few more things here. It's Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This goes against some of the false teaching that's out there. Many will say to me on that day, everybody say many. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we prophesy in your name. Number one, they call him Lord. They prophesied in his name. Well, some people say, well, you know, maybe it was false. Okay. But they cast out demons. And the book of Acts shows a Jewish priest and seven sons of Sceva that tried to do that without knowing the Lord. And the demon-possessed man jumped on and beat him up and threw him out naked. And they went running home bleeding and naked. So you're not going to be casting out demons without some kind of a born-again experience. And in my name, you perform many miracles. See, they wanted the power. They wanted the gifts. They wanted all that. But this is the scary part. And this, I'm reading straight from the scriptures. Jesus said on judgment day, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. If you study that out, number one, they didn't have a relationship that they should have had. They didn't know the intimate relationship with the Lord. They didn't have that. And then number two, they practiced lawlessness. They were living a life that was contrary to what they should have been living. They were living in unrepentant sin. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be sitting around here doing all this stuff, prophesying, casting out demons, praying for the sick, and doing all this stuff just to wind up on judgment day hearing those words. Depart from me. I never really knew you, and you lived a life of sin. You never repented and really got right with me. That's a scary thought, isn't it? See, here's the thing. The church knows about God. Now, I'm talking about the greater church. There's a lot of people out there. We go out witnessing frequently. (laughs) And everybody here can testify that you run into a lot of people that say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, I go to church. All this stuff, you know. You guys know what I'm saying. It's like 80% of the people, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. My parents are Christians. We go to church. I was raised in church and all this stuff. And they don't know the Lord. Are y'all hearing me? Did everybody hear that? They don't know the Lord. They know about him. They know who he is, but they don't know him. And they're not living a life that's, that is lining up with the word of God. They're living in unrepentant sin. See, the greater church, body of Christ, those that call themselves Christians, they know about God and they're busy with many things, but they don't really know him. The bride intimately knows the Lord and spends time with him. The bride is the one that's filled with extra oil, making themselves ready for his coming. And that's the call in Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. And that's what the Lord's looking for. I, I grieve this over some people's heads out there. I know they just, they're religious. But religion isn't going to get you into heaven. A relationship is going to be what gets you into heaven. 
All right. And here's the last thing I want to share. This isn't in your notes, but I want River of Life. I want y'all to hear this. So please look this way and catch this, okay? I shared this last night just briefly, but 1 Kings 19, verse 11. Elijah knew the Lord, okay? And when God came to him, he was depressed. He was facing that Jezebel spirit. And anybody's ever faced that, you know it's, it's very difficult, okay? So he was going through it. But he said, the Lord spoke to him, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains, breaking it into pieces. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of like a gentle blowing or a whisper came. And Elijah heard it and he wrapped his face in his mantle, which was a prayer shawl. And he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him. This is really important, that river of life, that you guys hear me in this, okay? As you guys understand some of the deeper things. But there's a big difference between getting caught up with things. I'll give you an example. We have some really awesome praise and worship. I want you all please hear this. This is why I close with. I want you to really hear this because this is something I feel like God is wanting to um, set people free from some of this deception. We have some wonderful praise and worship now. When I was young growing up, it wasn't like that, okay? Some of that worship was pretty cheesy, right? But, you know, God was in it and all that. But I'm just saying with some really good worship. But if you're not careful, you can get caught up with the energy and the excitement of the worship and and the passion that's in the worship and, and get caught up with, I like the song and all that sort of stuff. And it becomes about the worship and not about the Lord. And you can get caught up with the worship and the excitement of the worship, but it's not really the Lord. Okay? I love worship, and the Lord deserves all of our worship. And we're not doing worship just to kind of get through a religious ritual. I mean, we really worship the Lord. Worship's important. But ultimately, we're wanting to spend time with Him. So worship has, a, has its place, but ultimately, it's to be with Him. To spend time with him. Also, charismatic personalities. Sometimes there's different people that really get excited when they preach and minister. They, they scream and yell and shout and all this. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's times that I may do that. Um, there's certainly nothing wrong with being excited when you preach. But the problem is sometimes that people think that that's the anointing and that that's the move of God. But it's not. It's just a charismatic personality. We've got to have a higher level of discernment to know there's a difference between a charismatic personality and the anointing. Although the, the anointing can be on a charismatic personality. But I'm just saying we need to know the difference. And I, I was, I'm friends with a pastor, and um, he's been in the ministry since 1976. So he's been in the ministry 40 years. <clears throat> He's pastor a lot of different ethnic groups. And he said that there were some ethnic groups that, were, that really tended to really shout and get really excited, which there's nothing wrong with that. But he said that there were some of these people, though, that 
when they prayed for people or whatever, they were really just really shouting, excited, all this stuff. And it's like they thought that that was the anointing. That was the move of God. And he tried to explain to them that just because you're yelling and shouting and screaming and jumping up and down, that doesn't mean God's moving. You know, you, you can be quiet sometimes and God's going to move real powerful. And then other times you, you may feel led to shout or whatever. But, but he was trying. And some of them never got that. They never understood the difference. To them, it had to do with this charisma. And something I've seen in this area, and I, I really hope you guys hear some of this because it's very strong in our region, that people get real excited about events, whether it be something like we're going to have this speaker or we're going to put on this conference or we're going to have this youth rally or we're going to do this, whatever type of event it is, that people get so excited and they rally around the event and there's like this excitement around the event and they don't understand that that excitement about something is still not the move of God. It's just the excitement about something. There's a difference. And there's nothing wrong with being excited. But if they think that's the move of God, they're going to miss the move of God. And I really believe that there is, we've talked about at length, and those from River of Life know about the stronghold of religious witchcraft in our region, okay? You deal with the Jezebel side of things, but I'm talking about the religion. The religion is a counterfeit to the move of God. And the enemy is trying, through a religious spirit, to counterfeit the true move of God and get people distracted by other things. Wonderful worship, which is wonderful. I love worship. Charismatic personalities, events that are going on, doing this, doing that. And all these things. And all of them are fine, but the problem is, here's the problem. A lot of people think that's the move of God. And they're actually distracted from the actual move of God. And being intimate with the Lord. We have the smoke and the lights. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not trying to say that this stuff is wrong. I'm trying to say that if you're not careful, you'll get your eyes on it and off the Lord. That's what I'm trying to say. It's, it can be distractions. And people think that, that because they're excited about going somewhere, that this is revival. That's not. It's excitement. There's a difference. Is the Lord truly enough for some people? See, you talk to a lot of Christians say, is Jesus enough for you? Oh, yes. I mean, he's everything I need. He's everything to me. Say, okay, go lock them in a room with Jesus for a while and see how long they last. It's not going to be long until they're bored and they're going back to their other stuff. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to say that I have seen true revival and I have seen people that were really hungry for God for real and some of this other stuff out there where people say they're hungry for God. I've seen the real and I know that's, you know, it's not what they say it is. I've seen God really touch people. I've seen God really move. And I want the real. I don't want these cheap counterfeits that a religious spirit has got people all deceived into thinking that it's something that it's not. And a religious spirit will use entertainment as a counterfeit to the true presence and joy of the Lord. And if we're not careful, all of this can be a distraction from intimacy with him.
it's about him. Even though God may touch people, I've seen God touch people many times and they'll fall under power, they're laughing, they're crying. That's awesome. Let God touch you. Praise God that God's touching us. We need his touch. But it's not about falling in the floor. It's not about the worship. It's not about all these other things. It's about him. It's about being with him, knowing him, and having that intimacy with God. And when you know him like that, you're going to be progressively changed more and more into his image. That's what it's about. And that is going to be the preparation of the bride. And I want to be ready when he comes. I see a lot of religion. I see a lot of deception. I see the things the Bible said would come. The Bible says there would be great deception in the last days. And I see it. People that really truly believe, yeah, I'm fine. I'm on my way to heaven. And you know that they're not fine. You love them and you want to help them. But is it love for me to tell somebody I know that is in sin and I know they're not right and I know they're on their way to hell? Is it really love for me to tell them, oh, you're fine. We all just love you. Or would it be love to say, sir, you better make sure. You better make sure. I feel like that would be love. And I'm grieved at some of the stuff I see out there. The Lord isn't coming for a polluted, defiled bride that's out sleeping around and and getting drunk and living in sin and doing all this stuff. That's not who he's coming for. Some people may think that they're fine that way. Oh, I'm fine. I'm going to heaven. You're just deceiving yourself. All right. We're going to pray for people tonight, but here's what I want us to do first. I want you guys to close your eyes, and I don't want any distractions for a moment. If you need to get things right with God, I'm going to tell you, Jesus does love you more than you could ever imagine. He, Jesus, does not want anybody to go to hell. He cares about you. He wants you to go to heaven. In fact, he cares about you so much he was willing to come and die a horrible death so you could go to heaven. But I'm going to tell you, it is our responsibility that we're willing to turn away from our sin and put our faith in Jesus and give our lives to him. And that's what I'm asking tonight. Is there people here that really want to give your life to him? That means, Jesus, I'm going to give you everything. I want you to wash me. I want you to change me. I want you to make me a different person. I want you to take the junk out of me. I want to be yours. I want to be different, Jesus. I want to really give you my life tonight. If that's you tonight, I want you to pray this prayer sincerely, and God will hear you. But because I don't want to like make one person pray, I want everybody here that wants to be Jesus' property, you want to give your life to him, you want to be his, I want everybody to pray this. Jesus, forgive me for the sin in my life. I give you my life. I believe you died on the cross for me. Forgive me, Lord, for my sin. I believe you took my sin on that cross and you paid for it. And you raised from the dead. You defeated Satan so that I can go to heaven. I give you my life tonight. Change me. Transform my life. Take everything out of me that doesn't please you. I give you everything. Wash me. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to pray for people.